Hey everyone, this is Erica Lucas, your host and founding member of VEST, an organization connecting women across industries, regions, and career levels, so that together we can expedite the pipeline of more women in positions of power and influence. Welcome to another episode of the Vester Podcast, where we explore the invisible barriers holding women back in the workplace and share stories of women building power collectively. If we look at the status by numbers, women are over 50% of the population, but less than a third of elected officials across levels of office. Right now, about 41% of women serving, for example, in the U.S. House are women of color. No Black women currently serve in the U.S. Senate. No Black woman has ever served as governor. So when we think about progress, it's also paired with the fact that we still have really glaring gaps in representation by groups. Obviously, the status goes beyond those in elective office. And so what we try to look at when we think about women's political power are women in leadership positions, women as appointees, women as high-level staff, whether on campaigns or in government, women as lobbyists, women as activists, many of the work that you all are doing in, in various spaces, right, is politically powerful. And so we are, again, seeing energy among women in increasing that political influence and power, but how do we then harness that and transfer into also those who are elected? Um, and, and one way to do that is also to get women to give more politically and have a more um, a financial voice in, in these conversations, because whether we like it or not, money matters in our elections. And so we know that women are significantly underrepresented as political donors. So that's another place where we could make some progress. As we head into the 2022 midterm election, we invited Kelly Dedmark, Associate Professor of Political Science at Rutgers University and Director of Research and Scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Kelly is also the co-author of A Seat at the Table, Congress Women's Perspectives on Why Their Representation Matters, and author of Navigating Gender Terrain, Stereotypes and Strategy in Political Campaigns. As an expert source on gender in American political institutions, Kelly's a frequent commentator for multiple media outlets, including MSNBC, NPR, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. Join us as we talk to Kelly about the status of women in politics and how we can harness women's political power together. To access our guest's full bio and for show notes, go to www.vesther.co forward slash podcast. This recording was part of a more intimate coaching session with Vest members and has been repurposed to accommodate this episode. It's exciting to be here today. I've been a member with Vest for two years and have always found these sessions to be so valuable and enlightening. So I am grateful for the opportunity and invite to moderate today. As Erica mentioned, this is a topic that I uh, is near and dear to my heart. Um, I've always been someone that's extremely engaged in, in policy and politics in the state of Oklahoma and in my community. And so it's exciting to be uh, able to speak today with Kelly Dittmar, Dittmar on, on this topic. So when we speak about building power collectively, which ultimately is the goal of VEST, I can think of no single space where women can most challenge the status quo than in politics. In 2021, women represent 20, 27% of Congress. And 49 of those women are women of color. 
nationwide, 31% of women serve in state legislatures and 26 are women of color. Just 10 women serve as governors. And here in Oklahoma, uh, this has never been more important. In November, it's women who stand to defeat incumbents and challengers in some of our highest positions on the ballot and making today's discussion all the more relevant and important. So I'm going to kick this off with an easy question. What is the status of women in politics? Yeah. So, I mean, of course you could come at this from a variety of perspectives. So I'm going to go with the classic kind of cop approach, which is one of the things we're known for at the Center for American Women in Politics is keeping these data, keeping the numbers of where women stand across levels of office, um, by state, by party, uh, and in terms of their representation among office holders. Um, and certainly we'll talk about that as well in terms of, of keeping the data on women as candidates and, and dig into that probably about 22. Um, but as you already mentioned, you know, if we look at the status by numbers, women are over 50% of the population, but less than a third of elected officials across levels of office. Um, so women are 27.5% of Congress, about 28% in the House, 24% in the Senate, 31% of statewide elective executive offices. So these are, you know, as you all know, governors, attorneys general, superintendents of public instruction, um, all of those offices that are elected statewide. Um, just not Nine of 50 governors. Um, that's actually a record, sadly. Um, so that's the height of where we are. Um, 31% of state legislators, as, as Shaga mentioned. And then even when we get down to the mayoral level, uh, we keep this data for cities over 30,000. So obviously it's still not comprehensive, but if we look at that level, women are about 26%. So we see real consistency in women's representation. Unfortunately, that consistency um, is far below what we would discuss as gender parity. Um, we also, though, when we're thinking about the status, want to break that down Again, not overall necessarily, but also look by party, by race, ethnicity, by office. And so I'm just going to give a couple of those facts so as not to bore everybody. But all of this is, you know, available on our website. We have a database as well as some summary sheets um, that are hopefully easily navigated um, by anybody who's interested. But at every level of office, Democrats outnumber Republicans among women office holders. Um, we'll certainly talk about Oklahoma where those trends are different, um, but that is an exception, uh, not the rule. Um, so 73% of, of women in Congress, for example, are Democrats. 66% of women state legislators are Democrats. One third of, uh, excuse me, two thirds of women governors are Democrats. Um, and so you see a pretty consistent trend there in a partisan break. We're also seeing increased racial and ethnic diversity among women. So when we talk about the status, we're seeing some growth in that diversity among women themselves when it comes to race and ethnicity. Right now, about 41% of women serving, for example, in the U.S. House are women of color. Um, greater progress, again, on the Democratic side, about close to 50% of the Democratic women um, in the House are women of color, if we if we categorize in that broad category. Um, our website does like a breakdown by group um, as well, because we want to make sure we don't just say women of color um, and look specifically at trends for women of different racial and ethnic groups. And so just to give you a couple of examples there, no Black women currently serve in the U.S. Senate. No Black woman has ever served as governor. So when we think about progress, it's also paired with the fact that we still have really glaring gaps in representation by groups. And we also have 
a lot of this is recent history. We're talking about a lot of first still, um, which shows we have a lot of work to 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 do. Um, for Latinas, just one Latina has ever served in the U.S. Senate. Um, Catherine Cortez Masto, who's obviously um, a vulnerable in this election in Nevada. Um, two Latinas have ever have served as governor, both in New Mexico. Um, Texas didn't send its first Latinas to Congress until after the 2018 election, right? And that surprised some folks based on the demographics of the state. So again, we have to match those demographics of who's being represented uh, by whom when we think about concepts of representation. And then, of course, the first Native American women, the first Middle Eastern, North African women were not elected to Congress until 2018 as well. And we just elected the first Alaska Native women. Um, the last thing I want to say on this when we talk about the numbers is that in the statewide elected executive position, this is a place where we've seen the most significant underrepresentation specifically of women of color. Um, and so if we look at the women who are currently serving in those offices, almost 80% are white. And historically, that number is even greater, right? And so we've just seen an area of real lack of um, diversification of the women who serve in these positions. And I think we can all think about the implications of that, because these are very powerful and influential um, offices. So that's one area when we think about status that I think there's a lot of uh, room for us to think about why and how we change those data. Um, and then I would just say that Obviously, the status goes beyond those in elective office. And so what we try to look at when we think about women's political power are women in leadership positions, women as appointees, women as high level staff, whether on campaigns or in government, women as lobbyists, women as activists, many of the work that you all are doing in, in various spaces, right, is politically powerful, and so we are, again, seeing energy among women in increasing that political influence and power, but how do we then harness that and transfer into also those who are elected? Um, and, and one way to do that is also to get women to give more politically and have a more um, a financial voice in, in these conversations, because whether we like it or not, money matters in our elections. And so we know that women are significantly underrepresented as political donors. So that's another place where we could make some progress. Ooh, I hadn't thought about the contribution side of that being so impactful. It makes sense when you think about it as, as, uh, oftentimes the money side of it is what does play. So, um, can you speak more about the, if, if these trends have changed over the last several years, has there been an increase or a drop in the number of women running for public office? And do you, does your research lend itself to understanding why? Yeah, so definitely, and you all have heard those sort of storylines, and you've probably seen it. Um, it's even true in Oklahoma. So for for a state that has um, lagged, um, you know, in representation across levels of office for women, um, even there we have seen the the, the increases in candidacies um, and even election of women um, in 2018 and again in 2020. The patterns nationally have been that in 18 we saw effectively Democratic women um, increase. It, like, for example, in the, at the House level, Democratic women doubled <laughs> the record, right? Like, so it was it was not just a bump up like we have seen in previous elections, um, double, you know, the amount of uh, Democratic women running for the U.S. House that year. Obviously, we saw the, the largest freshman class of women come out of that. Of that class, just one woman was a Republican. Um, and so Republican women actually declined in 18. Um, and we saw that happen at most 
every level of office, their candidacies weren't high, their office holding then uh, suffered. In 2020, we hit new records overall for women, but that was really pushed by Republican women. And when you ask about motivation, um, we can't say for sure, right? Like we we uh, we tried. <laughs> we did a survey of women candidates. Um, for any of you who do public opinion research, uh, trying to get candidates to respond to you uh, is a real hard task. Um, so we surveyed them. We have some data. Uh, we did not put it out because I did not feel like it was solid enough. Um, we also did some like secondary analyses. I did a piece about 2018 where I could look at what they were saying publicly. We know that in 18, some of the narrative was right. So this narrative of, you know, Trump motivated women, the Women's March, all of that. Certainly that was part of the story. What we got a little frustrated about was that that was seen as the full story. You know, that like women woke up after 2016 and decided they were going to be political and they cared. Right. That was not the case for a lot of women, um, particularly actually women of color. Right. Who were like this threat had been here well before 2016. Um, So, yes, for some white middle upper class women who didn't feel the threat of uh, from the political system, it did yield a sort of wake up that that motivated them. And for some of them, that may have meant running for office. But when we're looking at the House and Senate governor, these are women already involved. So more of the story was also that there was an opportunity. There was a political opportunity. There was lots of conversations about underrepresentation and the need for greater representation. Men were not looking particularly good in that moment. Um, and so women could really put forth new messages and make the case for their candidacy in effective ways. So you saw women state legislators, women who had already been politically active, who may have run later or may have not run at all, who said there's an opportunity in this moment to run and win and be successful. And they messaged in that way. So 18 was very much, there was certainly a tie to that moment, um, an acceptance of a different kind of candidate. In 20, why did more Republican women run and win? I've talked to, um, I did a report on this. We have a couple of reports on both election cycles on our website. It's at womenrun.ruckers.edu. And we talked to some of our friends in the Republican organizations who do like recruitment and support. So ViewPAC or um, Winning for Women, these are national groups, um, and, and asked them, was the party recruiting more women? Was the Republican Party saying, look, we look bad, right? We're, we need to recruit more women. We have a, a underrepresentation problem. Uh, their sense at that time was no. And when I talked to Susan Brooks, who was the head of recruitment that year for the House committee, um, she did what was pretty common when we talked to more Republican leadership, which is to say, we don't recruit on demographics. You know, we don't choose on demographics. We choose the best candidates. So that was at least the public message that we were getting. You had Elise Stefanik and others who were pushing a public problem definition. In other words, saying that underrepresentation is acute in the, you know, an acute problem in the Republican Party and we need more women. So you had prominent Republicans saying this. And I think that may have inspired some women to run and think that, like, if I run, I'm going to have somebody have my back. Right. Um, And so some recognition that there might be some greater support infrastructure for women. I also think a lot of Republican women who ran were kind of peeved that, like, the message was the Republican Party is bad for women and the Democrats are good for women. And like they just wanted to prove that story wrong. Um, Many of them were motivated by Trump in a different way. 
you know, they were aligned with him. And so a lot of the messaging was we're going to go to Congress and protect Trump um, and, you know, fight for his his agenda and all of that, um, which is consistent with what we would see from other candidates. That's not particularly different. Um, but so we saw a record year for Republican women in 20. Um, and then I will stop talking. But just to say we are not seeing record year um, at most levels for either party um, in 22. And we could talk a little bit about why that might be the case if you want. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting to dig into. I, I There's a great question in the comments, and I think this could kind of go hand in hand with the next question about uh, the donor, curious if the donor base by gender impacts overall representation. And I'm wondering if your research around stereotypes and strategy and political campaigns also goes hand in hand with why perhaps we see fewer women getting uh donations. Um, so I'd be curious, can you talk a little bit more about your book and and the research uh, around stereotypes and strategy and political campaigns? Sure. Yeah. Let me start with the finance stuff. Um, and this is kudos to any of you who do campaign finance related work in any way or nonprofit finance. Uh, it is a mess. Uh, and it is, it's it's funny, my colleague Kira Simbamatsu is like our resident expert. So she has done a couple of reports for COP on um, gender and campaign finance. And I joke with her all the time. She's like, do you want to do this together? I'm like, no, 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 you got it. You got it. You understand these rules and laws and, and, and the data <laughs> itself. Um, so I am not the sole expert, but I will report kind of what she, what she has found and what we know, at least at this point in the literature, there's a distinction between the money women receive, so gender differences in receipts, and gender differences in giving. And so let me just start there. Receipts. Women do raise as much as men. It's very hard to consistently find a gender difference in receipts, but you all can kind of understand why that's the case. In other words, it's very much based on the competitiveness competitiveness as a race um, uh, and all sorts of other factors that go into campaign factors to try to get you to that same end goal. But when you talk to women running, they will 99% of the time say it's harder for us than our male counterparts. And I don't think they're lying. And there's some evidence that that's the case. Like there's been some research to show like they get on average smaller donations. And some of Kira's uh, research bears that out. If you look at her reports, again, they're on our website. Um, and you can find like, yeah, there's some of that bias in the individual donation. So the guy who's willing to max out to one guy candidate might give the woman half of that amount, right? Um, this is common in business and all sorts of other spaces as well, right? So a sort of underselling, it's based on networks, it's based on all sorts of access to networks, right? And so that's true. That seems to be true in politics. The one area where Open Secrets, who does this like religiously data, they had found in their last report, they were able to identify a specific uh, difference in in receipts for Black women specifically, like so a specific disadvantage for Black women. Um but across all other groups, they were they were kind of like, it's not statistically different. Very much depends on these things that happened before. Donors. Women are more likely to give to women. So when we look at proportions of your giving as a woman candidate, you are very likely going to have a higher number of women. Shared party. It's not that Democratic women are giving to Republican women or whatever, right? There has to be an affinity. Um, but there, there's some level of it seems like women are engaged more as donors when women are on the, the ballot. And that's then advantageous to women on the ballot, not because it makes or breaks their counts because the percentage is still too low 
And that's why I'm saying it's an opportunity. If women started giving politically more, our presumption based on the data is then that would help women candidates. Um, and they could even surpass men, perhaps. Emily's List is a good example of that at the national level. When you pull women donors, now they become in and of themselves a force in political campaigns. Um, and so in that way, it's been effective. Um, we can talk all sorts about pluses and minuses of that strategy, but it has been effective. So I think there is a relationship between those things. Um, and I'm just seeing Erica's question here. Um, is it that women work harder? Yeah. yeah. Most likely, right? I mean, so when we look at the research to kind of say, okay, they're getting smaller amounts, but they ultimately end up at the same place. I think that's part of it. I also think to others point, yes, there's an income piece, but the income piece there, we have to be careful because it's about the networks women are in, right? And instead of, so women are, women giving, it's, it's less about women giving less, they do, but it's that they're not giving at all, right? The proportion of donors is is just far fewer. Women are more likely to give to philanthropic sort of causes. And there's a couple of good studies on that. And they don't see politics as a cause. And that's part of the shift in mindset. Like you have to be both as a candidate able to make the case that it's a cause. Like you're not giving money to me, you're giving money to my cause, which is my agenda. And then women donors have to see it that way. And Nazi politics is like dirty. I don't want to be a part of it. And therefore, I don't want to give. Um, that I is to my book stuff, but I see somebody has a question. So, <laughs> yeah, I think I think that you just nailed it. I think that is so interesting. And I, I see that, especially in our state, especially in the most recent race, we really didn't see donors step up to the table until polling started to reveal a competition that was genuine. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Heather also mentioned, does the smaller amounts of donations correlate with income disparities between men and women donors? And I I do think it's so interesting to hear the data so closely reflects, honestly, the disparities in other areas professionally with women in leadership, women in roles, especially as it relates to women of color and women uh, not of color. Um, so I think that's a, also another interesting question to to dig into. Sure, sure. So this is um so the mm-hmm. the first book um I did was based off a dissertation, and I'll give you guys the the root of it because I think it actually speaks to like the motivation and where we're at today. So I was writing this and trying to come up with what my research would be um in the midst of the 2008 presidential campaign. And uh, to be honest, I was just kind of peeved at Mark Penn. Um, So Mark Penn was Hillary Clinton's top strategist um, for that campaign. Um, And you'll know now that after the election, there were um, some leaked documents about like the strategy memos, basically like what was what was she going to do as the first seemingly viable? We could have a debate about that, but um, candidate uh, woman candidate for president. And there's a classic um, line in one of those memos where he says, the country is not ready for a first mama president, um, but they're ready for a first father president that's a woman. And like, you could see that without me ever seeing that memo, you could see that in the campaign. You could see exactly how that mentality shaped 
her 2008 race, which was very much focused on proving she was man enough for the job, right? Like I meet these masculine credentials. I'm tough. I'm strong. If you remember the 3 a.m. ad, literally at campaign events, there were like the boxing gloves that would uh, be, always be in the background. There was like an actual person who would always have these boxing gloves. Um, one of the people who endorsed her said she has the most testicular fortitude, right? So there's all this language around she's tough, she's strong, she knows national security, all the stereotypically masculine uh, characteristics, traits, and issue expertise that have been so for so long associated with the presidency. Um, and there was very little about her being a woman. In fact, she would always say, I'm not running as a woman. I'm not asking you to vote for me as a woman, right? And it was very much like, I'm going to downplay this. There was some level of the historic nature, but that largely didn't come from her campaign. Um, as we know, that didn't work. And so part of what I wanted to look at in, in, in my project was to try to understand how campaign professionals understand gender in campaigns and then how they navigate it um, and what might be smart, what might work, what might not work, and what it means not just for winning a campaign, but ultimately for how we shape campaigns in the future and then how open they are to different types of people, including obviously thinking about gender um, parity. So I described campaigns as gendered institutions, saying they're shaped by gender norms and stereotypes that both guide candidate behavior and voters' evaluations and expectations of candidates. Those stereotypes create different rules and requirements for men, women and men because they navigate different realities. It's still true in running for office. And so the very simplistic nature of this is we all hold expectations of what it means to be a man or a woman. These are gender stereotypes. We hold expectations of what it means to, a, to be a candidate or a political leader. Those are stereotypes of candidacy or office holding. And for men, those two sets of expectations have historically aligned very nicely. That's what we call role congruity. We expect them to be strong, tough, masculine leaders, and we expect them to be masculine and identify with masculine traits. There's not a conflict. Um, for women, um, there is role incongruity, right? Or has been, at least historically, in that women, and you've heard this you know, described as well as the double bind, I have to prove that both I am feminine enough to meet the expectations of my gender, but I am masculine enough to meet the expectations of this office or this, this role. Um, and so they have more hazardous gendered terrain. And so the thing is, though, even though this they're navigating this, they've done so successfully, at least if we measure the success by winning. Um, and so we wanted to understand, or I wanted to understand, what are the strategic approaches to navigating that? Um, and one political consultant who's a friend of mine at the time or now told me for the book, gender really ceases to be a factor if you do your job well. And what that signaled to me was that there are some of these folks are, are very in tune with gender, right? Like they don't talk about it a lot, but they're very in tune with how gender might have to shape how they um, uh, do strategy, because at the end of the day, purposefully, they don't want gender to matter at the ballot box. And so what are the ways in which they're doing so? And in my view, are they ways that are disruptive and progressive, you know, that yield a more open um, and less masculinized politics? Or are they ways that play by the rules of the game and say, we're just going to reinforce it? Because at the end of the day, we just need to win. And one of my other favorite quotes from the that was um, a, a consultant who said to me, look, I'm not a social change agent here. Like my job is to win. 
And so in this case, if it means that I have to prove Hillary Clinton is man enough to win, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not trying to think about the long-term implications of reinforcing masculinity in this office. So that is a long, long ways to say that a lot of what I've been looking at from then to now, including in, by the way, one of my case studies in that book was the 2000, was the uh, Jerry Askins, Mary Fallon race um, in Oklahoma, to talk to strategists, to talk to the candidates, to look at their campaign materials and understand the ways in which we've seen some progress and the ways in which we've not. And uh, we can look at recent cycles and see a lot of progress. You know, women using gender as an asset, their gendered roles, their racialized experiences as something that brings them perspective that is a credential for office um, and not being sort of ashamed of that. But we also see women and men leaning heavily into masculinity, especially when we look at party breaks. And Donald Trump is a real clear case of that, right? He is the sort of manliest manly man, and that's why he should be president. Um, And so that trickles down to other levels of office for women and men. So it's much more about a gender story versus a sex story um, and how we navigate um, this. And I think it has long-term implications because I think it matters for who even wants to participate um, and then how welcome they feel in this space and, and what we value in terms of the traits and expectations of our office holders. Sure. I think it aligns with this. I was in Pennsylvania during the 2016 election, uh, which was expected to go to Clinton. Um, but one of the things that came out when she lost that state was that Pennsylvania has never elected a statewide Um, a woman in a statewide election. And I'm wondering, that was so surprising to me and shocking to me. I'm wondering if there's other states that are like that. And if you see any um, alignments with the characteristics of those states. Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know off the top of my head um, which states have had none. Part of that is a little tricky because the number of those offices vary significantly, right? So in New Jersey, for example, we only elect um, three statewide folks, including our two senators, right? Um, and well, four, but the lieutenant governor's on a ticket. Um, and so, uh, so in some states, you know, it's eight or nine people. So that's part of the reason I can't think about it off the top of my head, but I do think there's some I I think there's a challenge to look at characteristics um, by state that would predict that, right? In other words, so you have some states that um, do well at statewide, but they've never sent a woman to Congress. You have some states that, so that's Vermont. (laughs) Um, So you have some states that um, might have, so Oklahoma. Oklahoma has a better history of electing women statewide. Not that those numbers are massive, but they're way better than in some other states, but then has low representation and ranks 43rd in terms of state legislative representation. You know, only one woman in Congress, all these things. And so I think part of it has to do with we have to be attentive to the partisan story. Um, So where depending on the party that's electing statewide, you know, what that that will also influence the role of women and how much they may have prioritized the number of positions available um, and the types of positions, because sometimes women are niched into. So we see more women secretaries of state. Sometimes it also falls into like education areas, right? Expectations that women are expert in these areas. So they might fare better in those races and might be able to make a more effective case. Um, So number of those offices, party, um, 
And then I do think there's a historical, like, it's not path dependency, but it's like, if you see a woman in that office, you start to normalize it. And we've had a hard time in the, I think in political science or in the literature, trying to quantify that and measure that. Like how much does it matter that you had a governor already in, you know, that that will increase. And I would imagine my Oklahoma folks would say like, maybe that doesn't help. Um, right. So there are cases in which if a, if a woman governor is not successful or seen as not successful, um, does that hurt? We don't really have good evidence either way. So I, I would not feel like I could say whether or not that has an effect, but the more normalized women on the ballot is and women in leadership, the more that you might see less of the, some of the hurdles that women have faced in being questioned about whether or not they're electable at the statewide level. And that is absolutely, as somebody who lives in Pennsylvania, the case of what happened this year. Um, So when we were looking for who was going to run for the Senate, uh, the women that I talked to, I talked to a number of the women in Congress in our delegation. And, you know, their point was, people didn't think a woman could win. So now we have John Fetterman running who obviously might not win. Um, and there were some women that I think could have won and been successful, but because the powers that be the donors, et cetera, the political class didn't think the state was ready because they haven't before <laughs> past problem. Um, they, they opted for somebody they felt was safer, which is the Joe Biden scenario as well. Right. Um, I want to pivot a little bit to, I think why we we put this conversation timed in October, we have obviously a very important midterm uh, on the horizon for us. So if we could talk a little bit more about trends or patterns you're seeing for the midterms, and if you're willing, any predictions that you see coming. Sure. So um, I'm going to go through a little bit of, again, number stuff. We have, again, we have this all like available on our website. We just put out what is like a post-primary analysis that kind of walks through where we're at in terms of women's nominations across levels. But I'll give you a little bit on candidates and nominations by party, by race. Um, and then uh, happy to talk more about any of these things. Predictions, I'll give you a little bit, but uh, we're notoriously bad at predicting. Um, and also, I don't even know that you can predict in these cycles. Like, I want to ask you all about the governor's race. So, you know, I I, I have lots of questions. Um, but so this year, um, we set new records um, for women candidates for governor. So when I said before, it's not a record-breaking year, um, that's true, <laughs> but not for gubernatorial races. That's like the exception this year, right? So we have a record number of women who ran for governor across the country, Republicans and overall. Um, We also have a record number of women nominees for governor by a lot. (laughs) So we're at 25 nominees. Um, And again, that's a record for nominations for Democrats, Republicans, and and then overall. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about this, but there's also five all women gubernatorial contests in all of our history to date. We've only had four all of those types of contests in all of the years. <laughs> and then this year we have five of those contests. So it's just a signal again that we have a high level of women's representation. They are still not to par with men in terms of the percentages of the candidate pool and the nominee pool, um, but but closer this year. Um, I forget the exact number also on our website. Um We had a record number of women candidates for the U.S. Senate for Republicans in overall, um, but not um, nominees. 
So the number of women who made it through ultimately did not reach a record level. Um, And then when we look at the house, this is the area that I think gets probably the most attention because certainly in 18 and 20, that's where we saw those significant jumps, the most significant jumps. Um, And so this year, we are literally one under um, in terms of candidates, one shorter than we were in 20. So for all of you reading the headlines that I inevitably will come out in the next couple of weeks of like, women are declining in their candidacies. It's by one. <laughs> um, and so I would not put up the the red flag of like, oh my gosh, you know, but we didn't see a, a, a significant increase this year. And for the past two cycles, we were we were um, comfortable, right? We had seen that. Um, so, and when we get to nominations, the same is true. It's not as close, but we don't, it, it's not a record level of nominations for women running for the house for either um, party. Um, another way is to look at the party division among women candidates. So while Republican women were over 50% of Senate and gubernatorial candidates, they're just 35% of Senate and 36% of women nominees. So this is kind of interesting and something we haven't necessarily seen. Um, so in this case, Republican women running for these sta- those statewide offices, we didn't do the calculation for all statewide offices, um, had a lower win rate. So we definitely think it matters to have more, you know, women running at the beginning. Um, but we have to also be thoughtful about, are they running strategically? Are they supported? Are they making it through their primaries? And then once they're nominees, are they in winnable races, which gets to your question about uh, predictions, which I'll talk about in a second. When we look at by, um, uh, and sorry for the House, uh, Democratic women outnumbered Republican women as both candidates and nominees. That's consistent with historical patterns. Uh, when we look at nominee data by race and ethnicity, A record number of Black women are nominees for the U.S. Senate. That matters because, again, we have no Black women in the U.S. Senate. We've only had two Black women ever serve in the U.S. Senate, um, which should be embarrassing. Um, Women of other racial and ethnic groups, and we typically, we align our data by the census categories, including MENA. Um, And in each of those groups, women fell short of previous highs, so we're not seeing records in any particular group. When we look at nominations, a record number of Latino or Hispanic women are nominees for the U.S. House. This is something that I feel like is getting very little attention. Um, We've tried. (laughs) This is a story. Um, This is a story and it's important. It's progress. Um, But across other racial and ethnic groups, again, we haven't seen um, that high. Um, So there have been some stories about Black women where there's sort of been noted that it's not a record year in terms of nominations. Um, Finally, um, a record number of women are major party nominees for state legislatures. So that's also a place where we are seeing a record, though it's a pretty small increase overall. So we'll see what that means in terms of outcomes. Um, I mentioned the women versus women races. There's 37 House races that are women versus women. That's not a record, um, but it's pretty high. Um, And then on predictions, um, I would just say this. In the House, it could go either way. (laughs) this is a terrible prediction um but we are like literally the exact numbers so i've like played with cook political like we are pretty sure we're gonna get you know 15 16 new members right like they're favored to win 
we started with 18 incumbents leaving, right, in the house because whether retirement, running for another office, we had a woman who passed away. We had a couple of women who lost their primaries. So we are very close. So it all depends on the toss-up races, among which there are some women versus women races. So that's good. That's positive. Um, But we also have a lot of vulnerable incumbents. And so I would say where those vulnerable incumbents break are where we end up. Are we going to see a drastic increase? No, like we're not going to see a drastic increase, but are we going to see some increase possible? Similarly in the Senate, most vulnerable races, Catherine Cortez Masto, Maggie Hassan. Um, so will these incumbents win? The only, the most likely pickup in the Senate um, uh, is, is in Alabama with Katie Britt. Um, that's the one that's really likely. Um, and then women incumbents are also vulnerable in gubernatorial positions. Um, so despite it being a record year, uh, it's possible we end up at nine again. Um, but it really depends. So I want to hear about the Oklahoma race. Um, but we have women versus women. The places where we're very likely to see gains are in Massachusetts with Maura Healy, um, and in Arkansas with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. That's all but a short, um, but will Laura Kelly win in Kansas? Um, will Michelle Lujan Grisham's keep it in New Mexico? Will Gretchen Whitmer win in um, Michigan? Obviously, that would be replaced by a woman, so that evens it out. Um, but there are there are these cases that we're watching specifically, and I'll just note a couple other milestones for um, f- for firsts um, that I can predict pretty uh, faithfully, which is. First woman in Congress from Vermont ever. Um, so we will elect all but assured to elect the first woman to the U.S. House from Vermont. The first black woman to Congress from Pennsylvania. So it's a little near and dear to me. Um, Summer Lee, who was elected to the state legislature in 2018, um, will all but assured go to the Congress. Um, the first Latina will be elected to Congress from Illinois. Delia Ramirez also elected recently as a state legislator. Um, so I actually think there's a really great story that I've been pitching to media for months about women who won in 18 at the state legislative level, who particularly women of color who are now going to be in Congress. Um, there are competitive Latinas elsewhere, Colorado, Oregon, Virginia. First openly lesbian women governors, Massachusetts, possibly Oregon. That's a three-way race. And then I mentioned uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who would also be the first woman governor of Arkansas. We could elect our first black woman governor with Stacey Abrams. Um, I'm going to stop there. But those are some some kind of predictions. Yeah, I love those predictions. I think Oklahoma, you've mentioned a few times, you know, we are in this very interesting race for governor. We're in a very interesting race for Senate with Kendra Horn um, running against uh, what people seem to have thought was a front runner. but. Um, and I, I think that both are challenging in really interesting ways. A few people have mentioned in the comments that our biggest challenge is not actually the incumbents or the candidates they're running against. It's the lack of engaged voters. Um, and sorry, I just <laughs> walk on the patio. Um, it, it's actually the the number of disengaged voters who are 49% of the state population. So when we talk about engagement um, and actual uh, involvement, you know, I think the real challenge we face here is, is the lack of, or, or I guess the prevailing apathy yeah. for voters. And I'd love to talk and, and I welcome anyone to come off mute and say a little bit more about in particular, the governor's race. You know, I think what we've seen with joy is her ability 
to activate that non-voting base, the people who have, are frustrated and don't even realize it, or she's been able to really captivate people in a different way. And what we're seeing now is, you know, she's leading now 4% in the polls, which we don't trust the polls around here, but it is encouraging. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it comes down to how we engage and how we involve folks. So I, I just maybe move the conversation with the last couple of minutes that we have here around, you know, how do we get people to run for office? How do we get women more involved? Um, and what do we say to the women who, or individuals to say, I'm not that into politics, you know, how do we break through that 49%? Yeah, absolutely. So I was just looking at the chat so I can quickly just answer two things and then I will get to that, which is just to say one, um, by age, um, we don't have the data by age. It's surprising how many people don't want to share their age. Um, but we certainly could elect the first, the youngest woman and, uh, to Congress, uh, in New Hampshire. Her name is Caroline Levitt. She's a Republican and she's like 25. She'll be 26 maybe by the time she gets elected. Um, but I would say we're seeing some, some drop in the average age of women, which is a positive sign of that some hurdles that we typically have seen in terms of, um, uh, child care, elder care, all those things in the sandwich um, that maybe women are are finding ways to work through that. I don't think it's necessarily easier, but that they're willing to do it. Um, and then I wanted to, on the uh, candidate data by race and ethnicity, that is on our website. And we have uh, data by for candidates by race and ethnicity on our election page. And then our most recent analysis has the nominations by race and ethnicity. Um, but if it's something you would like more specifically, just email me and I can send it. Um, so what about like, okay, so increasing, pushing, pushing back kind of on the apathy piece. Um, I think part of it is, uh, so there's some general things like, oh, like, especially for women, like, do they think they're not qualified or they know enough about politics, things like that come up. Um, so I think there's a little bit of just demystifying like politics itself um, and who's in politics and what politicians do. So the more we can get and this is a cross gender, but I, I certainly think it matters for women to engage directly with elected office holders and candidates. Um, often what we find is they go like, oh, that's it. <laughs> like the bar, the bar is there. And it's not to say I don't want to rib like elected office holders because some are really great. And sometimes it's inspiring to them. But there's also like a, a, a realization that they're also real people and they're also flawed and they also don't know anything, don't know everything. And you don't either. So a lot of the programs and stuff we do are partly that, like especially with young people. Just meet an elected office holder, talk to them, understand that like they're not otherworldly. Um, and you don't all need to be like a Hillary Clinton who has five degrees, whatever, you know, like, and who has all this, this resume um, to be engaged or even to run for office. Um, and then I think it's like reorienting your definition to political. So because political has become for some people uh, like a dirty word, like it's so divisive. It's so uh, I don't want to be part of that crew. Like if I'm seen as political, then people are going to think that I'm part of, highly partisan or whatever it may be that you think has a negative connotation, which we know that's true for a lot of people, um, is to try to think about wording and um, characterizations of politics um, that really get to people's recognition that politics is a part of their everyday life. Like that you, you know, organizing your neighborhood around some issue, right, is in fact political. And the way that you 
amplify and expand the influence you have is to then translate that into voting and deciding who's running for office, finding a slate of people that you think are going to do the best and really trying to like scale up that scaffolding of like, I see that you do this thing, you know, um, and what here's what that would look like in this other space and, and making that clear connection to people so that they don't think that there's only one way to be political or one characteristic of people who are political. And so we see organizers do this all the way. Right? Like this is where uh, organizers are, are our best leaders, you know, community organizers to kind of make this case. Um about what politics is and what it means to be political and be informed and stuff like that. So, um, and then I think like, look, if it's beyond apathy, like if it's beyond voting and it's beyond like participation in that way, and it's thinking about actually running, I do think it matters that we talk about strategic recruitment. So I worry when we do things like, let's just ask a woman in your life to run. Like, sure. But that's not going to help her if she has no idea of like what the path is and where the opportunities are. So I think in our conversations about encouraging people to actually run for office, it has to be really strategic and planned out because we don't want to get people to run who have no chance, don't know what they're doing, feel really uh, overwhelmed. And so it's what's their skill set? Where do they live? You know, all the things that, you know, to Sarah Jane's point, I know Sally's list is doing, like, you know, there's a to build that sort of support infrastructure even more and and point people in that direction if they have any interest, um, I think is also really important. Yeah, as someone who's been, uh, who's attempted several false starts for public office, I think that that strategic recruitment is what is pretty absent in our communities. I think it's oftentimes people who get extremely frustrated um, and then just decide to run and realize that there is actually zero ecosystem to support sure. women for uh, running for, for running for public office. So that's why I think I, I was excited to join the board of Sally's List. And Chena is also on this call, and she serves as a Tulsa uh, board member for Sally's List. And we've talked a lot about about creating the ecosystem that is necessary to be able to build women up who are interested. I think that's really important and and that's something that stands out from your comments is, is really not something I have witnessed in, at least in Tulsa and Erica, maybe you can speak more to Oklahoma City, but we we really have, if you want to run for office, especially as a progressive, you are kind of on your own, um, which makes it more challenging. Well, we've got just a couple more minutes uh, it, as we wrap up. I just welcome you for any final thoughts on what are your, kind of your key takeaways uh, for, member, or for our members to take away from this conversation? And um, if you'd like, I'd also, we'd love to learn more about your work at the Center for American Women and your role with the organization. Sure, absolutely. And so one of the things that I think answers a little bit of both is um, uh, the connection. So I, how I met Erica was through a project we're doing um, at COP, um, which is to look at, and I love that you're using the language of ecosystems because that's the like sort of project, which is looking at state political ecosystems for women. And Oklahoma is one of our states, Pennsylvania is one of our states, Georgia, Illinois, um, and Nevada. And we're trying to look exactly at some of the things you're pointing to, Shaga, which is like, is there support infrastructure? Who does it serve? Um, really being intentional as well to not assume that 
because there's a women's organization, it serves all women. Um, and we certainly know, I mean, the conversations I've had in Oklahoma are fascinating when it comes to party, when it comes to race and ethnicity, when it comes to tribal um, uh, women. Um, and so we will, we're continuing to work on that. So I'd sort of welcome anybody to reach out. Um, but we're also hoping to obviously have public sort of reports and output from the conversations we've had um, with folks um, and some action steps, especially specific to Oklahoma and these states, um, hopefully by the end of the spring, early summer. That's what I'm hoping. Uh, we want to incorporate what happens in this election, obviously, because there's a good lots of stories. Um, so that's one thing, and that's the type of work that we do. So that gives you some insights into like COP's large-scale research projects, which is um, we're always motivated by how do we take research and ensure that it translates into action and practice? And so the question about this ecosystems project, like, I love talking to like traditional political scientists about this because they're like, oh my God, that that's like way too huge. And you're looking at too many variables and you can't control for things. And it, but like, that was our point. Like, that's what the world is. That's the real world. And so we need to understand how women function in an ecosystem in which there are all of these factors and there are all of these points of intervention. Um, and so to the best of our ability, we'll try to pull out some actionable, um, findings and then we'll translate we'll we'll translate that literally for practitioners and folks who might not be more traditional academics and how does that affect their work um so that's an example of a recent project you mentioned the book earlier um we did on women in congress so we interviewed um uh most of the women in the 114th Congress and were able to get their insights about why the representation matters. Why did we do that? Well, because we wanted to demonstrate it and use it to make the case to other women and to others about why it matters to have women's voices. Um, and so we had that first person perspective. We also keep the data. We do some programs like ready to run. Um, we work with the folks um, uh, at the university um, looking at uh, for young women, new leadership, um, and for our women who might run for office, um, our Ready to Run program. Um, and we're celebrating 50 years. We were born in the same time of a lot of women's organizations in 1971. Um, and we stuck it out and sort of have a good sense of the history of like where and how this world has evolved and how it continues to evolve. So, you know, always happy to talk to people about the historical piece, um, data, research we have that we've done over years about why women run, why they don't run, what their impact is, all of those things. Um, but we really cover the gamut and try to really blend those worlds of scholarship and practice. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe to our podcast for future episodes. You can also join the conversation by becoming a best member. Go to www.vester.co and apply today.